Hello and welcome back to the Folk Podcast, episode 78. We have an amazing guest today. Honestly, this is the one I've been very excited for. Uh, so a little backstory here. I started reading this book series while on vacation in Mexico a year ago, uh, and it was called the Norse Women series. And I absolutely loved it. And I read all three books and one one sitting on the beach, basically. <laughs> I did not leave that leave that beach. And uh, I, managed, I actually reached out to the author, uh, Joanna Wittenberg, and she's on the show with us today. So uh, we're going to talk about the book, uh, talk about some of the nuances and hopefully get you to buy it because honestly you should uh but uh without further ado let's go ahead and introduce joanna uh just say hello to everybody and tell us a little bit about yourself hi well um i'm johanna wittenberg i'm the author of the norse women series as you mentioned and right now it's a four book series but um i'm working on book five right now to speak and i never know how long it's going to take to put it out so i won't make any promises yet but it should be on pre-order hopefully by yeah, and the, the fourth one just came out uh, in February, correct? Yeah, and it took me uh, a whole year to get that one out, which sometimes it, it's shorter, sometimes it's longer. Uh, so for anyone that hasn't heard of your series, can you give us, you know, the elevator speech, so to speak, on, uh, you know, how you would describe it to somebody? Sure. Well, uh, the it's a series of books based on a real uh, queen who ruled for 20 years in the early Viking age. Her name was Queen Osa. And uh, she's well known in Norway and in the Scandinavian countries, but there's almost no information about her um, written, maybe uh, a paragraph. And that paragraph is very questionable. Snorri wrote it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I uh, started doing a lot of research. I was really intrigued by her. Um, how could a woman alone rule for 20 years in the early a Viking age in Norway, uh, but she did. And, um, you know, there's nothing about her except the fact that she took vengeance on her father's murderer and took over her father's kingdom and raised her son and then, um, I guess, retired when he came of age. But until then, she fought battles. She, we know she fought Danes. She fought uh, invaders. Uh, but also, there was a lot of magic and... Um, mystic experiences during the Scandinavian Viking age. Um, everybody believed in magic at that time. And so these books evolved from starting out as a straight historical into historical fantasy, which is really just a way of warning the reader that there's some magic in these books. I don't think that's a warning for audience at all. I think that's just selling the book even more. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people don't like, they want, you know, what they consider there's also a big controversy in the historical novel society faction uh, that if you're writing about what these people truly believe, then it's not fantasy. It's, but I call it that just as to let let readers know. And I'll That's let you up in here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you already planned it on it. What was I doing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, like it, it is impressive. Like hearing that there's really only roughly like a paragraph that's essentially you know, known about her. So obviously you had to do quite a lot of, of pre-thinking and freehand, uh, you know, uh, planning for telling the story. So what kind of, what, where did you get a lot of the ideas for all the, the blanks basically that you filled in with this story? Big blanks, yeah. Uh, mostly archeological research. Mm -hmm. um, there's, you know, some, of course I read the sagas and I read the Eddas and, um, you know, but the historical sources aren't very, helpful. Um, but what is helpful is my favorite book in the world, 
by Neil Price. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. It was actually his dissertation back in, I think, 2001 or 2002. It went out of print, and I was lucky enough to get a copy of it um, just on interlibrary loan. So I just poured over and almost memorized it. Then it came out, it was published. The second, uh, second edition was published just a couple of years ago, and it's awesome. But then um, there's also a lot of other scholarly papers that you can find on the internet. Academia.edu is a good source. I mean, I've used tons and tons of papers um, about you name it. <laughs> find the information, and then you can really start to construct it from those kind of sources. Uh, just for our listeners uh, listening, like in their car and the gym and whatnot, she just held up uh, the Viking Way by uh, Neil Oliver. Correct? It was Neil Oliver. Neil Price. Neil Price. Neil I get Price. Neil Oliver and Neil Price mixed up all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Since we were showing up our uh, rare book collection, this is the one I use for all my research. It's uh, we call them Vikings. It was sold uh, only when they did a one-year tour of Viking artifacts uh, across America, and I think they only did six stops uh, in that year. And they sold this book, and I think now it's like the only ones you can get are you know secondhand sources, and that's all like three hundred dollars or something like that. So, and it, and it's all just the artifacts they had on display there. Uh, so a lot of times when I reference, uh, especially like burial practices and things like that, I always go to that um, to actually look at those artifacts like you have. Um, so as far as, you know, moving into the Viking Age stuff, uh, what was your inspiration for this? You know, where did all this kind of come from where you're like, you know what, I want to write about Viking Age women, specifically, uh, specifically Osa. Uh, what was the inspiration for that? Well, um, I grew up in a Scandinavian community in Minnesota, uh, and my, my mother's side of the family is all Scandinavian, Norwegian primarily. And so the lore and the actually things about the Alfar and, you know, some of the magical things were something that my grandfather in particular talked about a lot. My mother got very interested in it. So when I was in college, I was helping her with research in, in uh, Scandinavian mythology and history. And we ran across Queen Osa uh, in this book that I actually have. It's really an old book, but it's uh, The Norseman by Count Oxensterna. <laughs> and Osa, and he talks about her in a very inspirational way um, that got us really excited. Um, so I guess, you know, when I thought about writing a series of novels, I thought, well, what could just that long? And that was what it was, a very unusual woman, although she wasn't as unusual once I started uh, doing more research, she wasn't the only one. She's just the most famous one. No, it's funny that you, you mentioned Minnesota. That's actually where I'm from and currently where I'm at right now. So I, yeah, I understand, you know, I'm being growing up around a, a heavy Scandinavian Norwegian uh, influence and stuff like that. Um, you know, like Jacob came up here back in, what was it, October? Uh, so many lifetimes ago. I think it was October. Oh, yeah, October. <laughs> yeah. And we went to, um, you know, go explore the uh, Yum Comps. Uh, Yum, thank you. Yum Comes Center in Moorhead, Minnesota. So yeah, we got to look at the safe church and stuff like that. And it's interesting to kind of see how much of that stuff is just around you all your life for the most part. And you don't really realize it until you actually start digging into it. But I'll see. Let's see. I'll, go, I'll go for that next question here. <clears throat> um, let's see here. Uh, so yeah, so kind of one of, the, one of the next questions that we came up with. So how much did you know about like the faith aspect of, you know, 
ancient Norse culture or like the Viking peoples for that time. Because quite frankly, there's a lot of hidden detail if you're not necessarily somebody who, or if you are somebody who practices like the faith actively, like you would pick that out. But for most people that probably don't, I mean, you would just think of it as very descriptive, you know, uh, language and wording, but there's, there's some really good research, I feel like, that you did on that, because there's some parts I was just like, oh, okay, like, I know exactly what this is, and it, you know, paints a very nice picture for me, at least, so, yeah, what kind of research, and how much digging did you do into that? A lot, really a lot. Um, I didn't know anything about it. I knew about Norse mythology, of course, like almost anyone from Minnesota does, uh, but other than that, I knew nothing. And so I, I was very, very interested in learning. Um, and uh, there again, Neil Price is probably one of the best best um, writers on that because he describes their finds in minute detail and really gives you an awful lot of um, ideas about how they did this, what they did. Um, you know, there's a whole section on burials illustrated in his book. And that really is probably where most of the information that we have comes from. That and, so, and the sagas, of course, have, you know, they do have some descriptions of state and uh, like um, the Eric the Red Saga, I believe is the one that has uh, the, the very, very elaborate description of a, of a vulva and her uh, performance, I guess you'd call it. Um, in was it in Greenland? I believe, yeah, it was in Greenland. Probably it was one of the lands. One of the lands. Yeah, <laughs> one of the few. There was only one woman left who knew how to sing. You know, and and do the chants that she needed to. But at one time, she had been a member of nine sisters that were all sorceresses, and they traveled the land. Um, and the women all grew up. Before this, this was right after Christianization, but before this, all the women knew how to sing their songs, their vard lokers. It's very important part of Well, that's something that's in, you know, uh, personally myself, I've been diving more into, you know, northern shaman, uh, shamanic practices and stuff like that. Uh, and I've personally been reaching out to a lot of people uh, in the northern European world still doing it, because one of the things that was lost is just the specific wording and songs, you know, that carries so much importance. Um, so I, I do want to give you, you know, a, a big, you know, uh, not a pat on the back. That sounds not right. What am I? What word am I looking for here, Ian? It's like uh, it kudos. A kudos. There we go. There you go. <laughs> a kudos. Just saying. You know, it, it's really hard as a practitioner. That you know, literally, this is my job to find this information. And for you, you know, coming into it, you know, just from the research angle, I think you did a really great job taking research that honestly is a lot, of, usually very dry and adding some magic back into that. And I think that's what a lot of times we're missing in the larger academic, you know, pagan Norse mythology world is you lose a lot of the, the, the passion, the magic in it just because it becomes just research. Uh, and so honestly, the, the way you transferred that to words was just amazing. Well, thank you. Uh, in part oh. uh, so Ian, what parts in the book uh, that you've been to, because I, you know, I'm I, I've lost track of where I'm at with the story now, but with uh, where you are in the book, uh, what have kind of, kind of caught your eye as far as uh, the more you know faith-based sections? Um, so yeah, like I said, I said I would say I'm about halfway-ish through the first one. So just to give like a good uh, timeline of where I'm at, I am right after shortly after the wedding ceremony. 
Uh, so I'd say that's a little bit, maybe not quite halfway, but about halfway-ish. Uh, it's a little bit past that. And as far as like, yeah, the faith-based aspect of it, I mean, uh, just just the marriage ceremony alone was was pretty in-depth with like the sacrificing of, a, of the boar, the Freya, and just that whole process honestly alone was very, very detailed and very just, I enjoyed that one quite a bit because that's the freshest in my mind right as of right now. But yeah, just the amount of detail that you put into it and just the, uh, obviously, yeah, like the research that you put into it was very well done. And it, it made me feel like I was, you know, there and like, you know, I, it was something that I could easily see in my mind of how it was, you know, how it was being done. Well, that's great. That's, I really appreciate you saying that. <laughs> that's my job to try to make transport the reader into another world yeah definitely definitely did a very good job at that yeah because it was yeah like you said there's you put so much I mean even obviously from your research you said there's a lot of minute detail that is you know presented there and then you translate that very well into the book and really paints that perfect picture I think for it oh that's good what was the biggest challenge for you as far as like, you know, like, you, you know, the Volva stuff or even as uh, with Rolf's character um, or even, you know, the runes and blacksmithing, you know, any of these things, uh, you know, what, what did you find most challenging about uh, bringing these things to life? Oh, boy. Um, I think part of it was that when you do the research, a lot of contradictions in the sources. Um, so that's one of the reasons I went back more to archaeological, even like the practices at Yole or some of the more important times of the year, when did they have some of the festivals? Um, that was very challenging. Um, and I used a lot of more, you know, more modern or medieval sources for some of the particulars. Um, one of the things is uh, the chanting, for example, I used the normal um, what a what a singer learns, how to project their voice, you know, how to breathe, all those things. I had a friend who is a singer, and when she was reading my description of their chanting, she said it just gave me chills. So I knew I'd hit it right, you know. But it was just one little thing at a time. Uh, that first book took six years from the very beginning when I first sat down. Uh, I was still working full time too at that time. So I didn't have as much time to spend on it, but just getting the very most basic research just took an awfully long time. So I guess um, I guess that's the thing, putting it all together and then trying to string it into a plot, make it into a, a, a story that that I thought was convincing. You know, I had to make up a lot in that first book. I'm picturing a, a big like, uh, you know, board of all these papers and strings <laughs> of you trying to connect things. <laughs> kind of, yeah. The timeline got really complicated. I mean, my books are always just huge messes. And then I have to kind of get them into shape because you can't just plan it all out. It just sort of kills, kills the story. So I guess the biggest challenge is just getting it, bringing all the plot elements together, all the different things that come up and making them work together. Um, my characters, characters will suddenly just start doing something and I don't even know why. <laughs> and then I have to figure out why and then fit it in with the rest of the story that I was planning to tell or else change my story completely. That happens quite a bit too. So I never know when the characters are going to sort of take over the book and <laughs> when they do, I just have to go along with it. 
<laughs> I uh, I know I mentioned that I, I am in the process of writing a book right now, and I, I didn't really get any details, but like a character I've decided to add, it's it's a sort of historical, well, not a historical fiction, a, a fiction story about a modern Yule celebration in our modern lens. Oh. Um, and so like a character I just randomly decided to add halfway through the book because I decided I need comic relief was a magical reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had to like sit back and I'm like, am I really adding like a magical reindeer to my story? And I'm just like scratching my head like, I guess I am. So I had to go back and kind of edit and, you know, prepare for this entrance of this magical reindeer comic relief character. <laughs> and those turn out usually to be your best characters in the best part of your story. So you got to got to let it happen. Yeah, well, you know, my personal, I'm really big on, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, pe getting people off their social medias, getting people outside, uh, just, you know, especially, you know, being 27, I grew up on the edge of the smartphone era. And so I was there, you know, I didn't get my first smartphone until I was 18. And so I kind of saw that transition of my nieces. Now it's all they do is they're on TikTok, And I'm like, whoa, what's happening here? And so like one of the things about the reindeer character is he takes uh, a younger character's like phone and like runs away with it. And so he's really big on getting people to stop using uh, technology and stuff. <laughs> so then it's like a wise reindeer. <laughs> yeah. So in truth, the reindeer is really just me. <laughs> well, now, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so uh, were there any surprises like that for as far as you things that you didn't? I mean, I'm sure there were, you know, what what did you you know, when you planned uh, for writing the first book or the series, uh, what came into it? that you're like, it was just a random spur of the moment idea that, you know, you're so glad made it into the story. I don't know that they're spur of the moment or random, but they just, you'll be writing along and all of a sudden uh, an idea will pop into my head and I'll follow it usually just to see where it leads. And um, then usually after that, there's a period of absolute despair because I know it's never going to work. And then all of a sudden the solution will just in my head and long walks in the woods are probably the best way for me to, you know, to arrive at a solution and they'll, it'll just appear in my head. I mean, I don't, I can't even explain it. Um, but that's what takes so long sometimes to, to get it right. It does take a long time. You know, you can't rush. And I have friends that, you know, writers that are friends that write a lot faster than me, but I just can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Ian, did you, uh, what are the questions you had? I've been seeing on the show here. You're muted now. I forgot I had myself on mute. Um, that's how long <laughs> I've been stealing the show. You put yourself on mute. <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, yeah, you're hitting a lot of like good points, a lot of good questions that I had. Um, there was, there was one that I had, I had thought of while listening, cause I'm listening to the audible currently, cause it was a good time, uh, way for me to pass the time driving to and from work. Um, now it's slipping my mind now that I actually have to ask it here. Well, yeah, because you you live five minutes from work now instead of 45. I, so you, I you have less time to read it. <laughs> I know. Yeah, exactly. Ah, I'm trying to think off the top of my head of what it was then. I'll have well, to come back to it. Yeah, all right. Yeah. All right, Ian. Well, I'll move on. I'll continue interviewing our guests. You think about your one question. Thanks. <laughs> and, and don't you worry. We make fun of Ian all the time. It's kind of like. Oh, yeah. This, it, I, I am I, the comic relief. I we, am the magic brain. Uh, recently, I met with a, a bunch of people in our community, and they all commented how we they love that we make fun of him. So we're just going to keep it going. <laughs> Uh, so I was going to like, you know, just for our reader, uh, our listeners in general, again, you know, I'm go we're going into it with already knowing what this book is about. Uh, but as far as like uh, characters like Rolf, you know, you know, who definitely 
are you know he's more of the villain character really and so going down that path like one of the things uh that really struck me was when he went down that more berserkier path you know hanging from the tree and stuff like that and i thought that was a very intense scene um so i just kind of wanted to ask you about that you know kind of you know again where you know with the inspiration and the story behind that you know or just talk about it and describe it to people well um i knew i had to have a berserker in the story and um raffin who's his mentor who's a villain who is through several books. Uh, he was a berserker and he was the um, King Gudrad's, uh, the leader of his armed forces. And he became so powerful that Gudrad became afraid of him and banished him, outlawed him. And of course, an outlaw has no rights. Once you're outlawed, anyone can kill you. If they catch you, you have like uh, until sundown of the second or third day to get out of town. Not that they had towns then, but get away from civilization. And you had to live in the forest. Um, and so Raffin was a seasoned berserker. And um, he kind of, you know, Rolf was already a bad guy, but he was just a kid. And so this mentor, Raffin, takes him under his wing and, and makes him even worse than he was by teaching him the berserker Rights. Now, in contrast, there's also the bear ceremony that Olaf goes through in the book, and that is also a berserker rite. But it, I kind of wanted to show, you know, that they could go both good and bad. You know, Harold Fairhair, way back, you know, over a hundred years later, he still used berserkers in his forces because they were just, um, it was a cult that was very important. Uh, the they there's some belief that you know both the berserkers and the Ulfhednar were the same same group. Um, there's a lot of portrayals, pictorial portrayals of these berserkers um, on bracteates, in carvings, and uh, in the Osberg tapestries, which are very. Um, they show shield maidens. They show people dressed as bears and people dressed in boar costumes. Uh, they show women and men both, and they look like they're getting ready for war. So uh, I really felt like that needed to be in there. Uh, and just try, there's a lot of controversy. Well, did they use mushrooms? Or was it just a spiritual thing? Um, but you no, know, it's a lot like the vision quests that the Native Americans warriors it's very similar. I was so struck by the similarity that I kind of used that as a model a little bit. Um, that you, you you went out and fasted, and you know, were out in the elements, and you brought yourself into this altered state. And that's how you achieved it. Now, whether you used it for good or ill, that was up to you. Yeah, uh, our other co-host, Caleb, oh, which I didn't mention to the public here. Caleb's not on the show with us today because he just had a baby literally like two or three days ago. Uh, his wife finally gave birth and uh, now he is completely outnumbered and is three to one on the women to men in his household. So wish him the best of luck because I don't know, he might never be back. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, to share with you, he actually kind of pursued this a few years ago, one of our uh, gatherings. Uh, he did a nine-day fast, and he basically wanted to wow. go down that uh, that berserker route. And he did famously the story that we call the Beast of Odin, uh, because he basically covered himself like head to toe in like tar pitch black. He had like a deer skull on his head, and he was just walking around the woods with a drum. 
and he didn't speak to anyone all day for this thing and then finally comes out for our ritual at the end and just starts howling like an animal he's like shaking this tree like it was the most primal thing we i had ever seen you know and he's sitting there around the fire afterwards just smacking his chest and like he was gone <laughs> uh, you know that's amazing yeah so that's one of the things we definitely try to do as community you know we follow those threads kind of like you do and then we take them to a ritual environment and see you know hey what happens you know what did we learn you know what can we change um, and recently we did it for a uh, ritual here, uh, this last Yule, and we kind of brought a community into it. Um, are you familiar with the band Heilung? Mm -hmm, I've heard of them. Yeah, so it's very similar to them. It's very primal. You know, we had a bunch of people involved and it was a really powerful primal ritual. So I definitely think that we're tapping into those things based on the information we have from the past. It's like they were definitely doing stuff similar, maybe not 100% the same, but we can definitely see the, the power in them. Well, the Sami... Uh really even now still follow some of their rituals and there's a lot a lot of evidence that the Norwegians at least and probably the Swedes got a lot of their magical rituals from the sun they you know they communicated back and forth and they have something called yoiking which is uh it's a it's a singing but it's it's a very particular um very primal sounding it's not a chant, it's more of a singing, but they would do that during their religious ceremonies and apparently still do, so. So Ian, we bought you a lot of time there. Did you think of your one question? <laughs> well, it was funny because, because the question, the question itself actually was answered when revolving. Lies. Uh, no, actually it was with, with the difference between how you, um, you know, between Rolf and Olaf being, you know, brothers, but having them go such different paths. I've always, I always really enjoy seeing characters like that in a lot of my stories. I always like to have like those two differences or that duality between, especially like family members, uh, where one will go down more of that that slightly darker path and the other one going more towards like not necessarily the most righteous, but like the better side of it. Um, you know, and it was it was kind of interesting. I haven't quite gotten to Ross at part of it as far as going through the berserker ritual and everything like that but just with Olaf going through you know how he was almost not necessarily fully into you know eating this bear heart and all this stuff at first but you know he was trying to he was trying you know doing what he knew needed to be done um you know it just to you know prove himself you know especially in that time period you know it would have been something that you know would have been you know frowned upon if he hadn't or you know would have been disappointing to his father which is you know something that is regularly talked about in the beginning at least of the first book so yeah actually like you kind of touched on it a bit it's just i guess more of my question was just finding that that inspiration behind like between the two brothers as far as like their i'm gonna use your word jacob your the dichotomy there you go i'm using it now <laughs> between those two because you know I, i've seen i've read some books and i've seen in, in like tv shows where you have sibling rivalry or a, a um, uh, you know, just a rivalry in general. And some people do it, I don't want to say like poorly, but it is not as, um, I know, I'm trying to find the good word for it here. Yeah, I got uh, you all confuddled with that dichotomy word. I know, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it's a little messier. And I feel like the way that you had the two of them be so different, but also uh, one of the, the scenes in the book where they are wrestling together, where they you know, are on that equal footing and it could go either way. Uh, I think it was just a nice blending of, of kind of giving them a sense of rivalry, but also letting them go down a different paths. So I'm kind of rambling on now here, 
about it, but because yeah, my question was kind of answered, so I don't. I don't know, just, just you just, want to, you just want to prove that you had a question. Yeah, right. Yeah, you put me on the spot now. <laughs> well, that's a good question because the, the rivalry between the two of them is one of the major parts of the book. Mm. Uh, so I was going to ask you, uh, you know, having some, uh, read further in, I was curious of why um, you did choose to go with uh, uh, Ragnahild. Is that how you you pronounce it? Ragnahild? Ragnahild, which Ragnahild. was not easy to learn how to say. Oh, the entire, I was like, oh no, she's going Celtic. I'm going to mispronounce everything here. <laughs> oh, Celtic uh, is much worse. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, well, uh, what was the kind of the choice or the thought process behind, you know, moving away from the character that, you know, the whole series was started around to focus on uh, her, you know, her best friend? Well, there was no thought process at all. Rangil just took over. You know, she appeared in the Falcon Queen early on, and she just sort of appeared skiing across Norway alone, running away from home. You know, she was a typical 14-year-old running away from home, just like they do nowadays. But uh, she just took put on her skis and skied across Norway. I could just see her. She just appeared. She was a whole person, and she wanted her own book. And once you get to the point where you read Rangild, you will know I had no choice but to give her her own book. <laughs> you just can't argue with her. <laughs> so she wrote, she wrote Raider Bride, and I didn't even realize that Raider Bride was set up in the book before it. I had no idea. And The Queen in the Mound was set up by Raider Bride. All these books are, are they just follow on each other. And I set up elements without realizing it. I just really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I will say again, you know, uh, with my own experience here writing, uh, I've realized that I want to write a sequel already, and I've already led, I read back, and I'm like, I already laid the breadcrumbs for a sequel. Yes, yeah. go <laughs> celebrate. <laughs> uh, so that's really awesome, and you know, and again, I definitely wasn't saying that in a bad way, you know, because it was natural. It wasn't like it was the spinoff series that we see in all the movies nowadays. It's like, why did we get a spinoff series on the character, this random character? But this actually made sense. Uh, so did you have to go back to the drawing board as far as far as research and you're like well now i gotta look up celtic stuff <laughs> yeah i did and it was a lot of fun i mean i've always been really intrigued with uh you know the celtic culture and their magic and what was interesting is to find out how many elements were cross-cultural between the scandinavians and the celtic celts and um you know the differences and the similarities are just fascinating to me so uh, it was it it was really unique to to be able to go and, and do that. Now it's much harder to research for some reason. The Celtic is harder. I couldn't find as much. I'm still, um, it's coming back in this book just to give you a, a hint. And so I'm having to do some more research and it was difficult. Um, I did base it as much as I could on what's known historically and on real people. Um, Mershad is real. So, and what happened, his story is actually real, but there again, you only get a few sentences about him. All right. Uh, I was going to uh, actually, do you have the book um, Myths and Symbols in Pagan Europe by H.R. Ellis Davidson? Yes, I do. Yes. I've got it here somewhere. This is my I, whole. Yeah. <laughs> I, recommend, I recommend that book. to. Uh, that was actually the first book that got me really interested. It wasn't the Poetic or Prose Edda. They had a copy of that at my uh, university. And it was the first book I picked up. I'm like, this is really fascinating. And that was, it was the connectivity between Celtic, Germanic, and Scandinavian that just absolutely fascinated me about all of this. Um, so yeah, I mean, definitely reading the, uh, the Raider's Bride, uh, just, you know, all the Celtic stuff mixed in there. Again, you just start seeing those commonalities between the two groups of people because um, at this time, uh, the Celtic people were for the most part already uh, Christian. 
So it, it definitely adds some dichotomy to the situation. It was very dichotomy. <laughs> to use that word, it's a good word. Uh, yeah, I feel like I need to take some uh, take a shot every time I say dichotomy. <laughs> he uses that a lot. I just to annoy you at this point. Well, the other thing that fascinated me is to discover that in Celtic society, women retained their rights, even though they had been Christianized since, you know, St. Patrick in around 400 AD. Uh, but the church stayed out of secular matters. They did not perform weddings. They did not dictate to society. In fact, it wasn't even after the Norman conquest of Ireland, the Normans didn't really conquer Ireland. They just got absorbed into the culture. And so it really wasn't until Queen Elizabeth I in 1602 with the flight of the earls, that's when Ireland lost everything and women lost their rights. But it wasn't until then, which is amazing. I forget where I read it. I think it might have been in an H.R.L.S. Davison book, but uh, it was talking about how the Romans were exploring like Northern Europe. It wasn't, it wasn't specific. It was either Denmark or Scandinavia. And they came across like a tribe of women that chased them away. And there's no other information besides the fact that these women came out of the shore and basically started shooting arrows at these guys. And they were so terrified to see women so fierce that they turned the boat around and left. <laughs> and I don't know if that might be the Scythian uh, Scythians that they did live on the plains in uh, the far Middle East, um, the steppes, and they yeah. were women warriors that you know were pretty much born in the saddle and that may may have been them too who knows but there were a lot of groups that aren't even recorded but yeah she's written a lot of books and this one um which has been my bible <laughs> we we just this talked like, about that like two episodes ago oh yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a great book it's um mm. it's, it was written in 1947 have you, uh, like, do you know much about her? Because she seems to be this, you know, scholar that popped up out of nowhere and then disappeared. Well, she lived a long time ago. And uh, that's that's the thing that's really interesting about her. Um, you know, she was a, a scholar back in the early days of this. And then she wrote, uh, but her books, most of them have stayed in print because she even, you know, if you sit down and read them today, even though they were maybe written in the 50s and 60s, they're still relevant. Um, you know, some of the archaeology may be new, but uh, she was amazing. I, I know very little about her personally. Yeah, there's another, uh, it's Helen A. Gerber that wrote uh, this, this one. It's just Tales of Norse Mythology. And oh. this is a modern edition of it. But the original book came out in the late 1800s. And when wow. I was doing uh, research, she was just, I mean, she had to be, you know, one of the earliest, you know, American women scholars researching this stuff. Um, and there's almost nothing about her, even though she wrote an entire book on Norse mythology. Uh, so that's that's been one of my interests is actually finding out where these random uh, women scholars have pop popped up and then they just vanish. Um, I don't think she I don't think she ever married and she just was had her own money, had her own wealth and wrote these books and disappeared. It's wild. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I would almost say a little mystical. <laughs> who are these women randomly appearing throughout time <laughs> shooting their arrows at the Romans <laughs> oh, no that's actually really exciting to see that book specifically like the road to hell because that's that was a book that was gifted to me uh last year by a member of our community and I I've enjoyed it greatly and it's it's one of those those nice missing pieces I feel like uh All so right, it's, I'm, it's buying really it. nice I'm buying seeing it. That I'm it right now I, I told you to buy it I need to buy times. it well, this edition that I got on Amazon is really, uh, it's not good. It's got a lot of typos in it. I think somebody just like retyped 
the book or something. And um, but it's you know you can figure out what they're saying. There's there's an awful lot of typos and everything, but it's yeah. well worth it because it's such a great book. Yeah, I, I got I downloaded the there was a um, there was a PDF available hmm, okay. that that I got, but uh, you know I I just have to be able to put my little post-it flags and things so I can find them again. And yeah, that's one of my uh, I have a lot of writings. I actually have an entire stack of just PDFs I've printed off because there's so many writings that just aren't in print anymore and they're almost impossible to yeah. get. I think it's uh, Saxo Grammaticus is the History of the Danes, Volume Two. Nearly impossible to get. Uh, but someone in the community found a PDF and uh, I printed off like everything I could. So I just have this massive wad of papers. I hate it because I'm like, I want a book, but you know, I'd rather have it than nothing. You can always bind it yourself. Yeah. Degree's a fun hobby. <laughs> I don't know if that's a hobby I want to get into. <laughs> uh, so as far as the, uh, oh, I had a Celtic question. So I think it was just gonna be a fun thing, some of the pronunciation here, because you have the Irish terms here I pulled up. Uh, so, oh, <laughs> does this put you on the spot? <laughs> Probably, because some of them I, I'm, I'll have to admit I won't be able to. Yeah, have. you sat here and you typed it and you're like, I don't have to say it. <laughs> that's, for, that's for the person that reads the audible. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that'll have to be done, but I do have some Irish friends. So. Oh, good, good. Yeah, like uh, like my heart is, is it I, I craw? I croy? <laughs> as near as i can tell it's a cry a cry yeah where's Ken? i might get our celtic guy in here but it's kind right. of like you know it's not yeah. what it's is not it like just... uh connor in our discord community his name literally looks like concabar and i'm right, like what right, does your name mean and he's like oh it just means connor i'm like what <laughs> most of the names are like that and they yeah. really fool you so you really have to look up the pronunciations and there's a lot of anglicized anglicized spellings because of that and so the connor is the anglicized spelling of conchabar which was never pronounced conchabar but it's got all got to do with um the scholars this the poets you know that they had back then in the brions uh, they, they had this whole culture that's fascinating um that uh, apparently evolved from the druids but it was their scholarly people their priests their judges their poets, um, they 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 got a degree, a high, very high degree, higher than a doctorate. Um, you know, some of them had to study for twelve years, and they uh, they were awarded these very high degrees. And so they were great scholars, and they just had to show it by using a lot of letters in their words and a lot of words in. I mean, if you read anything that they wrote, they use about a million adjectives and adverbs in every sentence. <laughs> oh my goodness! Maybe that's what translation uh, transitioned over to Tolkien, you know, in his writings. You know, <laughs> right? I need Probably. to describe every blade of grass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so actually, that. The, the question I was going to ask was actually about the Druid that you wrote about, um, you know, and I figured this could be more of just like an advertisement for you, because again, this is something that our reader, our listeners would really <laughs> like. Uh, so can you kind of describe the, your Druid character a little bit that you introduced? So that's Brother Brian, and um, he just, he's another one who just kind of appeared, uh, but I had to, had to include him in it, and because he's such a charming guy, and, um, you know, he's just a, kind of a almost a Francis of Assisi kind of guy where he loves animals and they love him. He lived out in the woods in this very simple, um, simple ascetic sort of um, hut, I guess. And the animals live with him. Uh, 
and I think, you know, he starts as a druid, but uh, it, it, at some point in um, in Irish history and English too, uh, a lot of these druids became Celtic Christian priests, and so that's why the so much of the mythology and the beliefs in, uh, were allowed or were kept kept in there. It was kind of a natural progression. And they just accepted Christianity as just another scholarly, they weren't threatened by it. It was another scholarly uh, spiritual practice. And so some of them became Christian priests, but Celtic Christianity at that time was very, very different than you know Roman Catholic. Uh, and as I said before, they didn't interfere in uh, secular matters. They were purely, but they were ascetics. So these Christian monks lived out on these rocky islands, and they, they went to uh, they went into exile for Jesus. They called it. Well, if you read back, a lot of these this um, process of going into exile goes back to the ancient Druids. So they're just still practicing the same religion that they practiced before. They're the same rituals, the same. Uh, deprivation, uh, self-sacrifice, a kind of a spirit journey um, where they're, that whole idea came from the Druids originally. And then, um, and then there was this huge rift, you know, with, with Rome, uh, the Celtic Christian church and the Roman Catholic church had a huge rift in the, uh, during the time period and, and before. And Ireland was kind of one of the last holdouts of all of this, all of uh, they had all the scholars. People would send their princes to Ireland to study and to learn all this lost ore that they'd preserved. But the way they did it was more by, uh, you know, even when the Normans conquered, supposedly conquered Ireland, they just absorbed them. They just took them in stride. They and they didn't really change all that much. They just added it's an additive thing, not a subtractive thing. I, think so that, I don't know if that answered your question. If you know, <laughs> no, uh, that's good. If I didn't. <laughs> no, I, I think this is good. This is what we like in our guests is when we just get you on those subjects you're just passionate about, you've done a lot of research <laughs> on, and we want you to, I mean, our last podcast, oh my gosh, we got a historian on here and it was just like, we didn't talk at all. It was great. You know, we would ask a question, then he would just give us a lecture for 15 <laughs> minutes. And before we do it, it was like, well, that's an hour. You know? <laughs> um, but something that actually the best way I've heard it described recently uh, is, uh, Ian, you know, I'm Soil Shaman on Instagram. I, I was asking him about Utasita and the practice of, uh, you know, Icelandic meditation. And the way he described uh, the way that people practice this is like the mullet. He's like, it was very mullet back then because you were Christian in the front and then pagan in the back. <laughs> <laughs> and so you would do your normal Christian stuff by day because, you know, Utasita is said to be done at night. It's a night meditation for the, uh, like the spirits. And so by, during the day, they would go to church at night, they would go in the woods and cover themselves with hoods and, and do the mullet stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I can hundred percent hear Matt saying that hundred <laughs> percent. Oh my goodness. Uh, Ian, and they you... would sit out on the grave mounds. That yeah. was one of the big things because they were hoping for, inspiration from their ancestors i did really like um the sec i forget was it it had to be in the falcon queen uh where uh they you had the burial mound and kind of like the the draugr is moment in there with like the the curse and whatnot i can't remember all the details but i really love that scene because it it wasn't quite to the like the zombie level of draugr but it was still like this area is <laughs> cursed and i loved it 
<laughs> and they did. They believed in uh, the Walking Dead. They believed in werewolves and not vampires. But uh, what was really interesting is they had stories that I haven't quite been able to work this in anywhere, but I'm going to. I have to. They would have stories about kings and princesses who would put themselves in their burial mounds with companions and they'd have themselves sealed in there and they had food and they had entertainment and they had you know their companions and they'd stay in the grave mound until they died uh, so this was a form of going to going to uh, odin and going to Valhall or folkvang and um it was a way of doing it without dying in battle. So they would just stay in there, but then there's all these stories about these droggers who break out in there ravenously <laughs> and they break out of their grave mounds. And it's like, well, you put two and two together and it's like, oh, maybe they were hungry. Maybe they weren't actually yeah. dead. Oh <laughs> maybe my they goodness. just ran out of food. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, like, because, you know, what if they decided halfway through, they're like, this is a terrible idea, let us out. And so, you know, but they're not allowed to, they can't tell other people, don't do this, it's a bad idea. <laughs> well, so there's really... a story about a princess who was in there with her nine companions, and one by one, the nine companions all died off until she was the last one alive. And I, I don't remember the ending of that one, but it's just like, these are really gruesome stories, but, you know, where did they come from? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> you know? Yes, it is. Glad we don't do that anymore. Well, yeah, I, uh... I just talked about it in because uh, they mentioned it in myths and symbols in pagan Europe, uh, like the Celtic tradition of saving the heads of your enemies and then using them in like fertility rituals. And I bring that up in a video not to, uh, that's coming out here soon. And I was just like, I'm really glad that went away. You know, like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and that was considered a way of honoring your yeah. enemy, um, the the taking of, and apparently that lasted quite into the middle ages the world's a really weird place people it's really <laughs> we, we are were really wild people have, yeah. you, have you watched any episodes of britannia i have not if not, you I get don't. a chance it was on i think it was on amazon prime the hmm. first couple seasons and I, it's it really puts you in that world I, I i really enjoyed it i mean it's crazy it's wild but it it's it's convincing in some ways and that's britain really yeah during the rope for a second Roman invasion, first from first Roman invasion, I think. Yeah, I'm not so versed on anything like the Anglo-Saxon or, uh, you know, even the Celtic as far as Ireland. I mostly stick to like Germanic and Celtic and stuff like that. So, you know, for like Ian and I, we really liked uh, like Barbarians that came out on Netflix. Um, mm -hmm. They actually spoke in, you know, old German and well, they spoke in German and Latin. So that was our big hype. But the uh, Britannia sounds pretty. When was it made? I don't even, I've never uh, heard of it. Just not that long ago, maybe within the last five years. Oh, okay. Yeah. British, it's British, but uh, Amazon was carrying it for a while on Prime, and I think they still are. Um, and then they they quit carrying it, so like season three or four isn't available unless you subscribe. You know, they're everybody's doing that now. Yeah. But I, if you want to look at what it maybe really was like, I really feel like they they captured it. They captured what I think it was really like. Yeah. So to uh, bring it back to the books here, um, as far as like uh, the next series, you know, you're writing and whatnot, you know, do you plan on just continuing this as far as the Norse women? Are you uh, planning on any other mythological jumps to any other societies throughout history? Or are you just going to kind of keep exploring the northern world for right now, you feel? 
At this point, I'm just going to keep on with with this series until until it's done. And I haven't seen any indication yet that it's coming to a close. Um, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big planner. I really like to just uh, just kind of go out in the ether and find what what's out there and try to make it into a book. <laughs> So oh, I, was I, gonna, I love that love. I live that way quite often as well. So it's <laughs> really hard that. though. Very messy. It's very yeah, messy. Yeah. Yeah. That's what one of the benefits of the YouTube in life is, you know, I do have to stick to a release schedule and stuff like that. For the most part, I'm like, yeah, I want to go wander up to Minnesota and see Ian and go to, you know, the stave church up there. I can do that if I'm willing to make that drive, you know, but laws <laughs> of laws the mind to flow. Uh so you uh have you written any other books before before this, or were this was this your first four-way into it? Um, you know, I tried, I started out in my younger days writing and, um, you know, wrote a couple called sock drawer novels. They go in the sock drawer and they never come again. And so, you know, that was just practice. They're just practice. A, a few short stories and I, enough short stories to realize that I don't like to write shorts. Um, and I, for a while, I was really into poetry. Now, now that I'm writing novels, it's like that part of my brain just isn't there anymore. Mm. <laughs> used to write a lot of poetry. Yeah, something I've been wanting to work on and what we've been trying to do with the community is write. I mean, one of the benefits of Snorri, I mean, as Snorri was Snorri, but uh, his <laughs> description of how to use kinnings and things like that is it's still really good. And so I've been wanting to write a poetry based on, you know, things we do in the community with kinnings um, to kind of use just like kinnings for everything. Like every other line, you change the kinning, uh, you know, to something else just as almost like a you know, a, a project to see how it would go, but it's very hard because basically every time you mention someone, you have to change the name, but even, you know, it, it's like, uh, shoot, I had a really cool thing for like the, you know, a voice is like the long ship of the wind. You know, I came up with like that. Uh, I was like, that's kind of fun, you know, but I don't know if you could write a whole book that way. <laughs> that would be really hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Ian, do you have any other final questions? I think we've covered everything we had written down. Yeah, I really, part. I really don't at the moment because I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm still working on the book, the first book right now, but I am excited to kind of see how everything plays out and how it goes. And I'm definitely going to try to finish it in time, all of them in time for the new one that's coming out. So, well, I mean, you got time for that one. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Since I just started writing it not that long <laughs> and um, that this one is getting very interesting because it's, it's uh, getting much more into the other world. Oh, okay. Ooh, you hear that listeners? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we have a very, our audience is unique because I feel like, you know, 95% of our listeners are all people that, you know, practice the faith today. Uh, so, you know, these are definitely the listeners that would, you know, you're not talking fantasy to them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's got to be a hard balance. I mean, I know it is for me, you know, making videos, you know, I have to keep in mind that not everyone that watches my content is actually in the faith. I have a lot of people that just watch it for entertainment value. So I can't, I have to keep things kind of balanced for them as well. You know, you can't go and all the way also out it's not easy to to be able to figure out what people understand and what they don't, you know, when you're when you're getting a little too uh, out there for them to follow. And that's why I have a writers group that I've been with for oh five years, and they really help keep me on the straight and narrow. We all write something different, you know. Some people write science fiction, some write detective, but uh, we read each other's work, and we a number of us have been together for the whole five years, and so we can say, wait a minute, the reader's not going to even have the faith of what you're talking about here. <laughs> right. Right. Because you don't want to go too far into the description. I know sometimes I do. And, uh, you know, for somebody who's just looking for a quick read, uh, I know sometimes uh, 
<laughs> sometimes we get a little in the weeds, but that's what I, I really, I, I like going in the weeds. That's I appreciate that. I, I'm, I'm for, for me personally, I'm definitely a, I definitely appreciate the aesthetics and like if somebody can describe something, even if it's the simplest object, I appreciate that because it, it does help get you that much more invested and that much more into the book and visualize it that much better. The only time I get lost is when someone gets way too lost in the politics of the world they create. I'm like, I don't care about the politics in the world I live in. I don't care about your politics of your fake world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I try just to put just enough in so that it makes what's going on makes sense. Right. And yeah. I would say like, for the most part, it's mostly just like the marriaging of people, uh, you know, office, I would say the only really the only time you do any kind of diving into that is, you know, well, I might have to marry, marry this person for this kind of power. And so I don't get invaded by that person, you know, that <laughs> but that was the real that was real back then, you know, that was the way you had to think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Luckily, we don't have to think about that anymore. <laughs> for the most part, <laughs> I don't have to think like, well, I need to think about a wife who is not making make my YouTube get invaded. And <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah i think that is good i mean we're right about the hour mark so i think i'm done with questions for you uh but i think the best way to leave it you know where can people find your book uh and find you and whatever else you want to tell people okay well um my books are mostly on amazon um they're ebooks i'm in kindle unlimited and uh paperback um I know that uh, because I go through Ingram Sparks, you can get them, you can special order them at places like Barnes and Noble, but not the eBooks. They're exclusive to Amazon at this point. Uh, it's much easier. Uh, and I have a website, johannawittenberg.com. Uh, you can find some, some blog posts. You can find out information about upcoming books. And I also have a mailing list that you can sign up for there. You get a free short story about the sorceress Hyde. Uh, and her backstory. It's just not real long, but it's, it's just a short story, but it gives you some insight into what, how she became the way she is. And uh, that becomes even more important in this next book that I'm writing. So. All right. Well, that's really exciting. I might have to do that myself. Uh, but Joanna, uh, Johanna, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, thank you for the, finding the time to be on here as well. Uh, and, and trust us, uh, you know, us <laughs> podcasters here who barely know what we're doing. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, but everyone, please make sure you're checking out. I mean, I, I really can't recommend it enough. Uh, please check out these books. I think as, as Norse pagans out there, as, uh, you know, practitioners of this old faith, I think you're going to find it uh, really entertaining, but also a really good reimagining of what it could have been like back then. Uh, so please make sure you're checking them out. They're amazing uh, and quick reads. So, but otherwise, thank you all so much for joining us. And until the hall, skull, skull. Oh.